the cost of renewable energy is so much cheaper. The jobs in clean energy are so many more than the fossil fuel industry that we are, it's actually cheaper now to save the planet than it is to destroy it. Hello, friends. I hope you've had a good and relaxing Christmas holiday, if you celebrate Christmas, that is. We all know it's been a weird year, and I think we're growing sick of hearing that, so I'm not going to spend lots of time talking about it, but I do feel a deep sense of optimism, courage, and also excitement for what 2020 will bring, and I hope you feel the same. And so I wanted to end this year, the strange, difficult, challenging, yet thought-provocative and liberating year in many ways ways on a note of optimism. Earlier this fall, I had the honor of doing a Zoom live with Andreas Karelas, a true climate optimist and author of the new book, Climate Courage. And it was such an optimistic and encouraging conversation that I've decided to end 2020 with this chat. So if you need some optimism to pump into your system now after the holidays and as we embark on yet another year, I hope this conversation can help. And since this was a live recording, we'll dive right into the conversation with Andreas describing why he chose to write a book like this in the first place. So without further ado, this is Andreas, founder of Revolve and the author of Climate Courage. Enjoy. I felt that as somebody who has been in the climate movement for a while and was, you know, has read a lot of books about the issue, I felt that the big issue is that the books are so fear-based and they are often sort of reaching an audience that are people who already care about climate change and, um, you're sort of preaching to the converted. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think that what we really need to do Uh, is ask ourselves the question, why do so many people um, not care about climate change? Or if they care about climate change, why are they not taking action? And so that's really what the book is about. Um, It's about how can we reach new audiences and how can we better message about climate change? And in a way that's not fear-based, or making people get anxious about climate change, which is going to make them want to turn away from it, but rather talking about the fact that, yeah, we have a real problem, but we also have a lot of real solutions. Mm-hmm. And uh, we actually have more momentum building towards the solutions than we realize. And so that's really kind of the impetus of the book. The hope is that it can help to change the narrative that we have about climate change in the country, which is so often focused about this partisan divide, you know, the right doesn't believe, the left does. Um, That's actually not true. You know, there's actually a lot more people who care about climate change than we realize. And uh, this message in the book is really about, you know, highlighting those stories and also trying to put forward um, some new ways of how we can communicate climate change to bring more people in. So where do you think you find the balance? Because I totally agree with you. We have to really start talking more about the solutions. And once you start talking about like, the progress of solar and all that's happened in the recent years, it's really, you know, encouraging, but where do you find that balance? Like, because at some point we also have to understand what's going on, but like, I don't know, where's the fine line between that? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I really want to say there are 
you have to really understand, I think as a climate communicator, we have to understand our audience and we have to really think about who are we, who are we speaking to and where are they, you know, on the spectrum of, you know, are they alarmed? Um, you know, are they, you know, kind of somewhat concerned? Are they dismissive or doubtful of climate change altogether? And I think you want to, you know, approach them in different ways. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is, um, the psychology of, of how we react to it. And you know, really our brains aren't built to respond to a threat like this. We're, we're really built to respond to threats like a saber toothed tiger that's right behind us. You know, and it's like, okay, you know, do I run, do I hide, do I fight? Um, you know, and so climate change is the opposite because it's, it's a far off problem in the future. And, you know, often what we've been told is that the in order to prevent a far off problem in the future, we have to um, sacrifice today. We have to, you know, curtail our, you know, the way we want to live and all this kind of stuff, which is not true. But um, but that message is so pervasive that um, that I think that's where we need to start. I think we need to start by saying, um, you know, no matter who we're talking to, yes, this problem is real. I mean, it is the biggest threat that humanity has ever faced. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we're already locked into a certain amount of warming, right? So, so I think it's important to recognize that we don't want to gloss it over and say, oh, there's no problem here. There's a huge problem. But um, just like with any big challenge, with any big problem, the worry and the anxiety can cause paralysis, right? Um, and so we can, like a deer in headlights, get stuck in our tracks. Mm -hmm. So we have to, you know, be realistic about the problem, but then quickly, you know, pivot and say, here are the solutions. Here's what we can do right now. And, and importantly, it's not, um, you know, I, I make this joke a lot and I love Al Gore and I, I love the, I'm, I'm incredibly indebted to his, you know, work, but it's, it, it went, you know, back in, in 2007, it was an inconvenient truth because there was an inconvenience uh, meaning we had to sacrifice. There was, it was a bitter medicine that we had to take. Well, fast forward you know, 13 years and the cost of renewable energy uh, is so much cheaper. The jobs in clean energy are so many more than the fossil fuel industry that we are, it's actually cheaper now to save the planet than it is to destroy it. It's more expensive to destroy it than it is to save it. So it's no longer an inconvenient truth. It's convenient, right? And it can, oh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, and it can improve our lives in countless ways. It can improve our communities in countless ways. And I think, so it's both, right? It's not, you know, we're not discounting the science or, or, or downplaying it. We're saying, yes, this is a huge problem, but here are the solutions. They can improve our lives right now, and they're going to make the, the future much better for future generations. Yeah, you're saying so many good stuff. I kind of want to just, before we move on, because you said about the deer and the headlights, and I have this analogy that I made up. It's like when you ask people to panic, we're almost like chickens. We're like, oh, my God, what do we do? And then we can run around and then realize that we can't get anywhere because we're trapped and, you know, the, the threat is approaching. And yes. like, what do you do? You're like, um, let's just put our heads on the ground and just try to ignore the fact that it's there because you can't do anything, right? So I feel like panic is never working. But I think when it comes to climate change, we've always been asked to panic. What do you do with that energy? Because that's a lot of very built up energy. And you're like up here, like, like feeling frustrated and like angry. And like, you get mad at yourself and you start fighting with your family. Like, ah, oh, you know, yeah. like almost that sort of rage. 
<laughs> but then it never ends somewhere good. So, you know, I think there's a way to be aware and to take this on. And I also said before we started a presentation, sometimes when you learn these things, there are very heavy emotions surfacing. Yeah. But it's important that we let them too, because if we keep suppressing them, like being an optimist is not about like ignoring things that are going on. It's about, you That's know, right. really allowing them to come up and then say, okay, knowing this, how can this empower me? Uh, and then yeah. that's when you need to start bringing in the solutions because we need to fuel that energy into something else. And I love that you said, it's not an inconvenient truth. It's a convenient truth. And that's yeah. how we got to see it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think, um, you know, that, that there is uh, a real uh, yearning from people to say, what can I do? What, what can I put that energy into? Um, you know, because, so often, and this is another thing that, you know, we really talk about that I talk about in the book is that the climate movement has been, like you said, you know, panic, you know, um, it's this big, scary problem, which it is. But then the solutions, when you say, okay, what are the solutions? Um, you're often told one of two things, either, you know, focus on your own individual footprint, um, i.e., you know, change your light bulbs and put air in your tires and, you know, use a, re a reusable grocery bag. And then the second is, you know, uh, let's hope that the government solves this. So we'll, you know, send them letters and, you know, march and send them peti sign petitions and all of that. And, and don't get me wrong, the, both of those are extremely important, right? It is important that we focus on our own footprint and it is important that we push our leaders. But I think, you know, most people, unless you're already, um, you know, sort of, uh, eco-minded or unless you're already um, sort of involved in politics, there might not be a clear path for you to get involved and take action. And to me, what's most exciting is what's happening at the community level, sort of in between those two, in between the individual and in between, you know, our leaders, uh, you know, somewhere else uh, fixing it is what can I do with the, with my neighbors in my, in my county, my city, my neighborhood, my, my state, uh, because those are the areas, because there's two factors there that make a big difference. One is you're working with other people, right? It's no longer just you in your room. Oh, I'm, you know, it's a good thing I'm using, um, you know, uh, these, you know, sustainable products by myself, but who else is doing it? Mm -hmm. And so you feel like, well, I'm not, I'm just a drop in the bucket. Um, when you are working with your neighbors and you're working with, within your community, then there's this sense of, Oh, we're working together and, and we got this, you know, we, we've got some momentum and we can really make things happen. Um, and the second thing is that you can operate on a scale that is, that makes a big enough difference. You know, if you work with your neighbors to put up solar on the local school, or if you set up a um, community garden, or if you set up a community recycling program or whatever, whatever sustainable, or you set up a, a car share or, you know, whatever types of solutions that you and your community can focus on. Um, that's where you can see the results, you can see the benefits in the community. And those are stories that can then spread from community to community, right? And then it's like, that's when you get real impact is when, oh, look at what, you know, uh, you know, in Georgetown, Texas, for example, I, you know, I talk about in the book, it's a Republican uh, mayor, uh, whose name is Dale Ross. And he said, um, you know, we uh, can save money by signing up for 100% renewable energy. 
And that's what they did. And they're setting an example for other cities to follow. You know, it doesn't matter whether the city is Republican or Democrat. It matters that they're saving a ton of money and, uh, and that's going to help others follow suit. Yeah, I think it's really important in these conversations that we first of all know the audience, like who are we talking to, what's going to take them, and it doesn't have to be this like shaming message of like, don't you want to have a livable future for your kids? Because like, it doesn't resonate with them, you know. That's yeah. like, of course I do. What do you like? Why would you even accuse me of not wanting that? But it's like right. some people, it just doesn't connect. Some people are only driven by money. It's like, how can we save money? Well, here's an incredible solution to do that. So you gotta just understand that like. But first of all, shaming someone and attacking someone. I've tried <laughs> that, that formula and just doesn't work. So coming at it from like encouragement and love and trying to like lead by example. And I get this question often because I always try to like bark in the individual actions and say that what you do matters. And yeah. myself too, like, I, I'm not going to lie. There are days when I'm like, why, why am I doing this? Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I'm just dropping a bucket weed side. And so I get the question often, like, isn't it dangerous though? Because once you start focusing on your own solutions, you are so small. So like, maybe you feel like I'm doing enough. So now I can just sit back and like, I'm doing my part. And of course there's that, that aspect to it. But what I think is that it's so, so multifaceted because when you show up as the change that you want to see in the world, first of all, that starts becoming part of your identity. So that's, you know, determines how you show up to yourself and to others and what you like do and the energy that you put out. And you said doing that in community with others that starts setting new trends in motion. And then that starts becoming the new norm and other people will pick up from that. I always say there are two options. Either you just don't do anything. You're like, we're screwed. I can't do anything. It's out of my power. But the only thing that happens then is that you feel powerless and anxious because the fear is still there, right? Like we're dying, <laughs> you know, this is really bad. Yeah. But when the other option is, I'm gonna do all I can and show up an optimist in action every single day and see what can I do and how can I inspire others to do even more. Uh, and I think it's ultimately down to you as a person. Do you wanna feel crappy or do you wanna feel good? And if it's that simple, and if this simple answer is actually also helping us save the planet, then that's just a win-win. 100% agree. Yeah, 100% agree. And um, yeah, and I would say that, you know, we, uh, we need to, as, as, as the, the climate change movement needs to make it easier for people to get involved in ways that they that resonate with them, you know, and, and, and I think that's, that's what's missing, um, you know, is that we need more uh, simple ways for people to get involved at the community level so that they can see the impact uh, and that they can work with other people, know that they're not alone. Um, and then hopefully those will replicate and, and you know, you'll tell more and more stories uh, about success. Yeah, and speaking of success, um, in your work, both like writing the book, but also in your entrepreneurial path, um, what are some of the most exciting solutions that you have been exposed to that makes you feel hopeful? Yeah, um, I mean, I think, you know, solar energy is... Uh, I, I, it's hard to it's hard to put this in a way um, that uh, to really capture the excitement. But um, when we think about um, cell phones, you know, when we think about uh, how quickly, you know, it went from nobody having a cell phone to everybody. You know, now there's more cell phones in the world than there are people, right? So, and and, and that happened in a short amount of time. I mean, really, like you know, within five to seven years, right? Like that kind of massive growth. That's the type of trajectory that we are looking at with clean energy um, in the next decade. Um, electric vehicles. You know, here in California, 
Um, you know, Gavin Newsom uh, just uh, put out a proclamation that we are going to have by 2035, no more, um, uh, basically only emission-free vehicles are going to be sold in the state of California. Well, that's huge. I mean, California is a big state, a lot of cars in the state. So we're basically going to, you know, hundred percent electric vehicles. Um, so the technological uh, trajectory of solar panel, batteries, electric vehicles, smart grids, energy efficiency, um, this is the wave of the future. And I don't think people have really seen it yet and because um, it's been growing so slowly and steadily um, that uh, basically it's growing exponentially, but it's been kind of slow. And so what happens with exponential growth is that once it starts to turn, then it really grows. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the moment that we're in right now. And, and, and like I said, you know, we have literally just crossed that point where um, clean energy is now the cheapest way to generate electricity in the world. Uh, and so uh, as you you know, what, and, and it's not just clean energy advocates that are saying this, the fossil fuel industry recognizes that we're by 2050 the world will be predominantly clean powered by clean energy. Um, and that's, that's the fossil fuel industry's take. When you look at the advocates, it's like, well, we could be there by 2035, you know, mm -hmm. you know, Joe Biden's clean energy plan is saying we can have 100% clean energy in the United States by 2035. And that's his goal. Right. So, um, so, so, so I think it's very pot. I think the technology is uh, making climate solutions possible that we never really thought of before. And what's beneficial about that is it also creates a ton of jobs. It saves a ton of money. It creates community resilience. It reduces air pollution, uh, all the things that everybody can get behind um, and, and, and make our lives better. So that to me is, is what's really exciting. Um, and I think that there are a lot of groups that are working on different pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So there's a group, um, for example, Vote Solar, that uh, works on the policy level at the, at the city and state level. How can we um, sort of uh, stop the utilities that are trying to block solar? Because there's a lot. How can we uh, you know, create the incentives and the right types of policies to make it easier and streamlined to get rid of all the red tape that's involved in putting up solar? Um, you know, groups like uh, Ready for 100 uh, from the Sierra Club uh, is, you know, training volunteers to um, uh, go convince their local elected officials to commit to 100% renewable energy. And they've been so successful doing so uh, just in the last few years that now one out of three Americans lives in a city or state that is committed to 100% renewable energy. Wow. Didn't yeah. that. Incredible. It's incredible. And it's just volunteers getting together in their community. Um, you know, they're not, they're not, in, they're not working for the, uh, you know, for, for clean energy companies. They're just people, concerned citizens getting together and organizing. And I think, you know, that's the type of, you know, possibility that, and there are all sorts of, you know, groups like, that. I mean, Revolve, which is the nonprofit that I've started and run, um, you know, what we do is we train volunteers to go uh, identify local nonprofits in their community, you know, a school, a homeless shelter, a food bank, a health clinic, um, uh, a house of worship. And uh, these are groups that otherwise um, have a hard time getting financing for solar energy. 
And so what we do is we provide that financing through a revolving fund that we call the solar seed fund. And the idea, and the idea is that if we help this school, for example, go solar, then they can help spread the message of solar energy to all the families and all the students that go to that school and help those families go solar themselves and help those families get involved in solar policy advocacy. And so this is the ripple effect that, you know, we think will happen in, in, in more and more communities across the country. Yeah, a few things on that. One thing that I love about um, that I've learned reading up on, <clears throat> sorry, something I know, learned <laughs> about climate psychology is that when you, it's, it really, it's really important how you frame a message you can basically say the exact same thing, but if you're focusing on like, I think the example in the book was recycling. If you say 70% of the city does not recycle, your automated response is, okay, well then I don't have to either because the majority doesn't recycle. But if you then instead say 30% already recycles and then be like, I wanna be part of that solution. So even though it's the exact same information, how you say it is so different. You People wanna be part of the solution, but they will succumb to the problem if that's what they're you know presented with. So. I think what you said about just normal people walking around and having people sign up to solar, that's a great example of that. And then also um, part of, I think, the, where the biggest shift will happen is when we work with choice architecture. We've got to make it easy for people to make the right choices. It doesn't have yes. to be we're like, I'm this hippy-dippy eco, you know, Brooklyn hipster that, <laughs> you know, I'm always going to bring my cup and like, because that's not never going to be scaled, right? So it has to be like the, the most, the easiest choice is the one that's good for the planet and not the other yes. way around. Yes. And I think, you know, I love that point you mentioned of flipping it from, you know, 30% are doing it. Um, you know, one of the, and again, this gets at the human psychology around it. Um, you know, we have, basically we have our, our emotional, the emotional part of our brain and the rational part of our brain. And the emotional part of our brain is actually what makes the decisions, you know? So for example, um, you know, if we, uh, if we're, you know, if we're trying to, um, you know, get in shape, we're trying to, uh, to kind of eat healthy and we say, okay, I'm going to start eating healthy. Um, but then you see a cupcake in the window, uh, all of a sudden your emotional parts, Ooh, I, I want to eat the cupcake. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and you kind of, all your, you know, plans go out the window because the emotional part of our brain is actually what makes the decision. And so, um, so we have to keep that in mind when we're presenting this information and we have to make it easy. So one of the examples I, I talk about in the book, um, uh, these two uh, authors, the, the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, they write about in their book Switch that let's say you were, um, let's say you had a lot of debt that you were, you were trying to get out of debt and you're looking at all your bills and you've got a, um, you know, a, a, you know, a thousand dollar utility bill that you need to pay. Um, but then you only have a, but then you've got this one, you know, credit card bill that's a $20 bill. Um, if you start with the largest bill first, uh, it'll feel very difficult because you won't you won't get any momentum because you won't have enough money to pay it. But if you start with the twenty dollar bill and you just pay that, then boom, you could cross it off your list. Now I've got a little bit of momentum. I've got a, I feel a little bit more empowered. I feel like oh, I can do this. You know, I'm 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 gaining uh, the the confidence that I can solve this problem. And that's how we need to frame climate change. That we've got a little bit of momentum. We're ready to keep going. Um, and 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 here's how you can plug in. I think that speaks back to the individual action as well, right? Because yes. that is why just start by being more aware of what you're eating and eating more plant-based and like, can I cut down on plastic? And, you know, as you add on, these new things become the new norm. And so it's going to be the simple way of doing things because it's just going to be the new habit that you're doing. So it's not going to be hard to add on things because you, like you said, building momentum and building off of that momentum. I want to also, before we open up to the audience, 
just mention one of my favorite solutions because you are like the Silicon Valley guy <laughs> now talking about <laughs> tech and, you know, I love that. I'm more out in nature here in Massachusetts. So I'll talk about life. And something that really excites me is when we start bringing life back to our life where previously depleted, life comes back so fast. So like yes. restoring soil, restoring oceans, planting trees, when you bring biodiversity back into ecosystems, it's like, you know, like magic almost, there's life again. And yeah. when we restore the soil, it's gonna start sequestering carbon and brings water back. And it's just like this beautiful cycle of optimism. And I think if we, I mean, there is a saying of the eagle and the condor, and I, many people think that's what's happening right now. But if we bring together the tech world and the natural world, how can we have them work together and not against one another? And I think ultimately that's where the solutions lie. And we're just going to have to continue to unfold one after the other, but with this optimistic, excited spirit that we can do this because that's the only thing that will move us forward. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And just, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the plant-based diet and, um, and I'll just say, you know, two things on it, which is one is that, um, you know, and to this point about soil regeneration and, you know, 80% of the world's agricultural lands are uh, used for livestock, right? They're either, they're either for the livestock to graze or they are growing crops to feed the livestock. And so, and it only produces like 14% of the world's calories. So it's this massive, you know, misuse of, of the world's land. And so if folks were to eat a more uh, plant-based diet, and in fact, they are, many, many more people are, um, then what you have is reduced demand for the, for the livestock. And so, and what the UN proposes is that we use that land to reforest. And if you, re, if you plant trees on those uh, for, formerly, uh, you know, lands that were used for livestock, now you're sequestering carbon back into the, into the soil that you weren't before. Um, and, and, and it can be, um, and we can suck a lot of carbon out of the air that way. Um, so that's really important. And then the other thing I'll say, you know, to your point is that, you know, I've, I've been vegan personally for 14 years. And from the time when I started uh, eating a plant-based diet to now, um, the amount, it's become a lot easier. It's become a lot, lot easier because there's so many more people that are vegan and that are, um, and, and so there are better vegan options at restaurants. There's better vegan options in the grocery store. It's much more commonplace. And that's the benefit of people taking individual action and then enough people doing it in the community that then the market and then eventually policy starts to respond, you know, to people's collective actions. Yes. And I think I mentioned this last time we talked. I also want to mention if anyone has questions, um, we're going to open up very soon. You can either drop something in the comment box or unmute yourself, but just making you guys prepared. Uh, I want to say this because I said to you that sometimes um, I don't want to be the, the annoying, you know, girl, I'm not going to say bitch, but <laughs> the annoying person who walks into a restaurant is like, Oh, do you have this or that? But like, if I don't see a plant-based option on the menu, I will still say, Oh, do you have anything plant-based? Because you know, they might say we can fix something for you or they might say no, but either or either way, I have asked a question. And so they now know that there's demand for it. And I think yes. we have to continue using our voices. Uh, you can ask in a very nice way. It doesn't have to be demeaning in any way, but you know, like, oh, is there any chance you can fix something to me that's plant-based? Um, and the more people that do that, then suddenly there might be, we need to have something plant-based on the menu because obviously they're leaving us <laughs> because, you know, we can't serve that. So I think, you know, continuing continuing to use our voices and our power to start shifting demand is, is really powerful too. Massive. So I had a question about uh, the psychology angle. 
I mean, definitely nobody really cares when they turn on their lights where the energy is coming from, right? It could be coming from solar or wind or fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. But when you talk about changing diets, people take that, uh, you know, they tend to take that more personally. So, <laughs> you know, how would you suggest uh, getting that message out there or, or approaching people about that? Yeah, that's, it's a really tough one. And, and, and to be honest, um, it's, it's not when I talk about climate change, um, it's not something I, I really lead with, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, we, I talk about in the book and I, and I point to the evidence. Um, I think that, that let me, let me back it up to say uh, when it, when we, when we're talking about climate change, as I mentioned, there's, there's sort of our rational mind and our emotional mind and the emotional mind is the one that makes the decisions. And when we're trying to approach somebody about climate change, the emotional mind is sort of like the, the gatekeeper. And if you can establish trust and establish a sense of commonality, then the gatekeeper will kind of let you in. And then you can start talking rationally to the rational mind. And, but if you can't, uh, if the emotional mind is like, well, here's some crazy vegan, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to listen to this guy, you know, who's this hippie vegan guy, whatever, then it's going to tune out everything you're saying and it's not going to listen. Right. And so that's why I think, you know, the climate movement in general has done itself a disservice. Um, Like Anne said, you know, we've, it's, it's so much of the messaging has been around panic and it's this, you know, we have to, you know, freak out and do something. And it's like, let's start with, Hey, do you care about jobs? Do you care about the economy? Do you, do you care about, you know, um, resiliency in the community? Do you care about lower air pollution, cleaner water? Do you care about, you know, uh, reduced international conflict, um, you know, supporting the military and, and their, uh, you know, clean energy, uh, you know, supporting their energy independence needs, their energy security needs? Okay, if we're on common ground, then we can have a little bit more of a conversation, right? And then we can start talking about solar and we can start talking about, um, you know, changing your diet and things like that. Um, but again, I think it's, it's, it's starting with what people already care about, you know, especially with diet, it's, you know, maybe they care about their health. Um, you know, as we all know, uh, the, you know, meat, uh, and, and dairy are going to have adverse health effects over time. Um, Perhaps people care about the animals and their well-being. Um, if they don't care about the environment and the environmental impact, um, perhaps they care about the workers who work in uh, a uh, the animal uh, sort of livestock industry, right? So, so, so there are a number of different angles. And really, whenever you're talking to somebody uh, about any of these issues, you want to be sure to you know sort of establish trust and connect emotionally first. What is it something that we care about? That's that's mutual. And if you can build a little bit of trust, then you can start to explore, okay, well, what do you care about? And how can I connect that to climate change, um, whether that's diet or, or, or any of these subjects? Yeah, I'll just agree real quick, too, because I feel like when it comes to diet, it's so um, like close to culture and people's identity. And so that's why sometimes, I mean, I have a personal story where I went vegan um, and I just completely disconnected with my grandmother because she didn't know how to show her love anymore because she's always been cooking for me. So it was like, can't believe you're doing this to me. And I'm like, it's not to you. (laughs) So I totally get that. And it's really, it's it's sometimes a very, a hard topic. And I think you have to just sort of sense the, the, each opportunity, like, is this a time when I can bring this up? Will this be received? Well, and yeah, I mean, you don't want to be the party pooper who's like bringing up that topic. It's like, are you serving this? It's like, I'm not going to have that. I think the best way is really to just lead by example. And like you said, find a common ground um, and talk about it in like something that's going to resonate with this person. 
but yeah, it's not easy. And that's kind of like what we need to navigate as climate leaders. Um, but it's a very important topic. And I think we can just kind of like, you know, show the numbers of what you just said, like 80% of something is making up 14% of all the calories. Like that's insane. You know, like we have yeah. going to have food shortages and do you not want to help figure out the climate crisis? Well, if we, you know, grow this instead, like we can sequester so much more carbon from the atmosphere and maybe just point to the fact that we're cutting down rainforests for, uh, for meat and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's definitely hard. I think it's just about not attacking, having someone feel attacked for the choices they're making, which is always tricky, but that's sort of what we got to have to figure out. Great question. It's, um, so we have Pradeb wants to say, hi, Andreas, I want to ask what you, your thoughts on Asian countries' role in decreasing the carbon footprint, seeing it's where most of the world's population live. Yeah, so this is a really great question, right? Because when we look, you know, when you look at climate international politics, um, if you go back to, um, you know, the Kyoto Protocol, right, um, you know, in, in the late 90s, um, the big issue at that time was that uh, the developed countries, the United States primarily, and, uh, and, and also, you know, other Western countries are the, basically the primary and almost sole uh, contributors of greenhouse gases. And so all of a sudden, um, now it's like, okay, the countries of the world are coming together and saying, okay, we all need to stop using fossil fuels. And then you have other parts of the world, less developed parts of the world are saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't fair. You guys got to build, you know, your countries and your infrastructure and your economies and develop, um, you know, a, a better, you know, uh, sort of lifestyle through the use of fossil fuels that were cheap. Um, you can't take that away from us uh, without, you know, helping us, right? Give us some money to develop the clean energy technologies. And of course, you know, the United States and, and, and the West basically said, no, we're not going to, you know, and so that's kind of where it's been for, for a while, but actually, you know, from that time to now, what you've seen is that countries like China and India, um, you know, with the, the large populations that you're talking about, see the writing on the wall and they realize, hey, wait a minute, not only um, is this cheaper to generate the electricity that we need, uh, but it's also going to put us at the, at the cutting edge of the technological development. So, so China and India have actually invested more, uh, put those two countries in particular, invested more, have put more uh, policy support behind clean energy and climate change uh, than the United States has by far, by far. Right. So we're, so the United States is actually a laggard, um, you know, in uh, now, now our markets and our um, clean energy industry is growing dramatically. But the amount of support from the federal government in the United States pales in comparison to what's happening in Asia, as well as what's happening in Europe. The rest of the world, the rest, if you take nothing away from else from this talk, the rest of the world is 100% on board with what, what's happening. Fossil fuels are done and clean energy is the wave of the future. And they've all gotten on the train and they're moving in that direction. The United States is the only place that's, well, we're kind of half in the old world and, and you know, sort of um, dipping our toe into the clean energy world. Yeah, I also want to just add to that too. I don't know too much about this topic, but I learned a little bit about it. And like sometimes in less developed countries, what's actually good about that is like, because it, it's it's always a bigger shift when you have to move past an already existing infrastructure and replace it with something new. But if you just go straight from like, we need something, well, here's a great solution. So you can just like jump over the middleman that was like, we tried that, it wasn't good. This is even better. So it could be an easier shift for countries um, they're just starting to like catch up, then it will be for countries like America. 
that's a hundred percent right. And, and, and I actually write about that in the book, um, you know, and, 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 you know, that's this idea of leapfrogging, you know, it's the same, uh, it's the same analogy as again, back to cell phones, you know, um, uh, you know, in parts of the world that did not develop landline telephones with telephone poles everywhere. Uh, by the time the cell phone came out, it was so much easier and so much cheaper for people to get mobile phones than it was to build out the landlines. And the same is going to happen with clean energy, solar panels on your roof, as opposed to building out long transmission lines from a coal fired power plant that delivers power over a long distance. And with that too, I'll just end by saying that I think what I was trying to say before also, part of what we're doing here is just allowing ourselves to envision the future that we know could be possible. And that sometimes takes stretching that muscle of like envisioning and dreaming. But like, what would a city look like where like all the rooftops are green and there's like green walls everywhere and there is no noise because the cars are electric. And you know what, it, like that could be our future in 20 to 30 years. Like it doesn't even have to be that far out where like food comes from local farmers or even from like your own balcony. We're going to shift so much in society and that's why all of us need to play a part. But, you know, we need to start focusing more on the solutions already happening to amplify them further and try to stay in this mindset of like, okay, shit's urgent. Like we got to get to action, but I'm choosing to show up with optimism and the, the belief that this can happen. And I'm on that journey with other people too. So Andreas, thank you so much. Um, I cannot wait to read your book and um, I hope that you will give a little shout out maybe to the book since you're here. Climate Courage is the name of the book. Um, you can go to the website climatecourage.us um, and you can order a copy. Um, it's also available audiobook and Kindle. So um, I highly recommend it. And thank you, Anne, so much for, uh, for, for, for inviting me. And, uh, and thank you all for, for joining and sticking around. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for spending this year with me. If you're new to the show, I hope you stick around for lots more climate optimism, action device, and curiosity in 2021. And if you've been around for a while, I'm so happy to know that you're still here. I am super excited to dive into a new year with you and embrace all sorts of positive change together. So happy new years, my friends, and remember to stay curious, open-minded, and of course, stubbornly optimistic. Until next time, have a great day, take care of yourself, and I hope to see you back here again very soon.